Amen. Good morning. It is great to see all of you. Some of you are a little bleary-eyed because you got back from Haiti last night. Great to have you back. And some of you got back from Israel a few days ago. Uh, uh, and so you are extra spiritual for being here. Well done. Well played. Uh, I got to tell you, I am a little bit fired up. I, I'm actually a lot fired up. And you know, I'm, if you know me, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit always fired up. But I am really fired up this time of year because it's a little beautiful out, it's a little cooler out. But it's also playoff season in all these sports. There's all this competition happening. And so it's like it's built into our DNA this time of year that the, the energy, the, uh, the adrenaline starts building up in a lot of... How many of you are excited that the Cubs won the World Series? 108 years, 108 years it took them to win the World Series. That is, the, as it, that is as demonstrative as Presbyterians get in a worship service. You just saw it. That was over the top right there. Uh, but I know that's not how you were a few days ago. You were crying. You were laying on the floor. You were going crazy with total strangers and hugging them. You were doing all those things. Unbelievable energy this time of year. Well, I want to tell you something. We are in the middle of the playoffs for the gospel. They come every year. They should be all the time, but every year in the fall, we try and do something that's rooted in a much deeper and more powerful energy than that. Oh, would it be to look at Love South Florida, the Harvest Drive, the Scholarship Fund, the Beautification Day, the blessing of Fort Lauderdale High School, the way we look at the baseball playoffs, with the excitement that we give when Pick Your Team wins that big game. So I'm fired up, I'm pumped up, and I want you to be pumped up too. We continue in our study of the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul's second letter to this church in Corinth, uh, written a couple thousand years ago to a church that he planted in this city called Corinth, co coastal town, like we've said, a lot like Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and, we've, and he's been talking to these guys, he's been trying to help them work through something, okay? He's been talking to them about what the gospel inspires. Okay, the gospel is the good news that God came to earth in the flesh to bring renewal to all of his creation. That through Christ, God, Christ is God in the flesh. God is renewing all of his creation and everything in it. He's building a new heavens and a new earth and he's doing it through us, through the hearts of the redeemed. And so he talked about what the gospel inspires. A few weeks ago, he got right to the heart of things. He said the gospel inspires generosity. But then last week he said, but that's not enough. That's not all it, it, it doesn't just make you generous. It's not just generosity is one of the lists, the rules on the list of things that you do if you receive the gospel, so now I thus will be generous. That's not, he says it's not good enough. He says, no, no, no. The gospel doesn't just demand generosity. The gospel doesn't just make you generous. The gospel makes you cheerful. It inspires your generosity. And not just with your money. It inspires your generosity with everything you have. You pour your life into the life of a world the way Jesus poured his life into you. And so today, he kind of in some ways summarizes all of that. The gospel makes you generous. The gospel makes you cheerful in generosity. Today, the gospel anchors you. And in that anchoring, it sets you free. I'm reminded of the movie Martian, again. The greatest movie ever made. That might be a little stretch, but it's a great movie. I mentioned it several months ago in a sermon when I was talking about community. I'm gonna, I ruined it then, I'm going to ruin it again. It's a story of an astronaut who gets stranded on Mars, 
uh, and it's the story of how he, with the help of his friends, finds his way home. And so it's a beautiful story about love and community and commitment, but there's also this other great asset that he has besides his friends and community and people who love him and want him to get, to get him home. He has gravity. He has the laws of physics. He has the laws of nature. He has laws that are bigger than him that never change. And what's fascinating in the movie is how carefully he must calculate using these laws of nature, these immutable, unchangeable laws of nature that are bigger than him. It is absolutely imperative that none of those laws change one speck for him to make it back home. He has to be tethered to those laws that never change. To get to his destination, which is the earth, which is his home. And why is that his destination? It's just another ball spinning in the universe, right? No, it's where life is. It's where love is. It's where community and relationship and beauty and everything that he knows is. He tethers himself, not just to spaceships, but to the eternal immutable laws of nature get home and you know in any space movie the most terrifying thing that can happen is what if you become untethered that's the most horrifying thought is that you become untethered and you drift aimlessly out into the universe by yourself because here's what I think is so terrifying to the human soul we like to believe that we are in control and here's the problem once you become untethered in outer space It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter how much character and integrity you have. It doesn't matter how many awards you won on earth. It doesn't matter how many triathlons you've done or how good a shape you're in. It doesn't matter how hard you try or what you do. You will just flail in space until the oxygen runs out in your suit. That is a primal human fear to be untethered and I'm here to tell you that right now as a pastor you know we um, spend a lot of time understanding culture watching cultural trends watching the metrics the measurements of culture to see where it's headed and understanding in a very anecdotal personal way by people who talk to us what their deepest fears are And I'm going to tell you that feeling of being untethered, that feeling of drifting in space, no matter how hard they try, no matter what they do, an unexplainable sense of longing, sense of confusion, sense of desperation, is what we hear more than anything. That sounds to me like a culture untethered. There's two ways that's come about in our culture. One of them is the secularist route, okay, so a secularist, a a humanist, a a person who um, lives as though God does not exist. Maybe they even believe in God at some level. They're a deist. Um, They believe there's a God out there, but they don't believe that that God has any interaction with the natural world, with us. And the secularists, um, at their root, at their root intellectually, promoted this idea that there's nothing outside the box that is the natural world. The The only rules that are absolute are the rules of nature, gravity. Okay? You can't, it doesn't matter what you believe about gravity, right? It doesn't matter whether you believe it's true or not. It doesn't matter whether it makes you happy or sad. It doesn't matter whether you understand it or not. It is real. It is bigger. It is outside of you. You can't change it by the way you think about it. 
So the secularist believes that those are the only rules that are absolute. And then they take that next step further over the last hundred years or so, and they say, and therefore, anything outside of that is relative. I have to decide what I believe about those things. The supernatural, I have to identify for myself, which leads to the next logical place that you hear all the time in our culture. In fact, it's celebrated. The only heroic narrative, the only real authentic way to live your life, according to the secularist, is to assert your personal feelings, your desires, dreams, against everyone and everything else. You must be true to yourself. And if you don't do that, you're a sellout. You're unsophisticated, you're primitive, you're brainwashed, you're uncool. And so here's what the secularist does. The secularist tethers himself to himself. And you see the problem with that, but here's the thing, in case we religious folks think that think we get off the hook. In our culture, we've been influenced by these thoughts over the last 100, 200 years. We tether ourselves to something else, but ultimately it's the same thing. We tether ourselves as religious people to rituals, beliefs, rules, obedience, religious culture. We tether ourselves to those things for our security, for our stability, for our validation, for our significance. And here's the problem. When I attach myself to those things, first of all, they change too. Even in Christianity, when God gave us those things, they were meant to be illustrations of eternal, unchangeable, supernatural truths. The laws of the supernatural. They were to be images and foreshadowings of those truths that we understand with our mind and with our heart. But we've made them the end. We've made them the thing that gives us significance, that makes us better than someone else. And that leads us to the second problem with it. If I tether myself to things I must do in order to aspire to the perfections of the infinite God, then who have I tethered myself to again? Me. My effort. My righteousness. My goodness. My skill which on its surface gives me the ability to look down on you and those who are not as good as me. It gives me the ability to really never aspire to anything greater than myself because I'm still judging myself by myself. But then it also, in my darker, more authentic moments, terrifies me because I know I don't measure up. So I'm tethered to myself as well, just like the secularist. Both are untethered. Both are drifting. Neither is free. Why? Because we're both tethered to this world. Did you ever think what it would be like? This is why you're free when you're anchored. Gravity anchors you to the earth and it makes every move you make purposeful. It makes it meaningful. If you want to go that way, you can go that way. Gravity makes that happen, along with other laws. So I'm free. I'm free to do something purposeful with my life. If there is no gravity, I'm untethered and no matter what actions I take, I go nowhere. So for life to make sense in the supernatural realm, which is the eternal realm, I need a set of supernatural laws that exist beyond myself, and I need a destination. I need something beyond me to attach myself to, and I need a destination to be moving toward purposefully. 
This is exactly what Paul faces when he steps into the lives of these Corinthians. Here's the deal. The deal is they've accepted Christ. They've understood conceptually that Jesus came to this earth to be that which they could tether themselves to on this journey to the new heavens and the new earth. They understand that in their head, but they've been living their lives for a long time as fans of other things. They have a whole other set of things that they loved in their life. Their life did not revolve around Christ. And so Paul, one thing after another, is confronting these areas of their life where they've loved something other than the gospel. They've understood their, their romantic life. They've understood their money. They've understood their work. They've understood their relationships through the filter of the world. And so week after week, as we've discussed, in his letter, Paul confronts this confusion. But here's the problem. When he does that, he moves their cheese around, right? He starts stepping into your life and telling you about what the gospel should inspire you to do with your money, with your romantic relationships. Well, what do people start doing, especially smart, educated people like these Corinthians? Well, they start resorting to attacks on his character, on his competence, on his intentions. They're cornered by the gospel that makes them angry. But, lest we be too hard on that, I want you to remember something. This is the church. These are sinful people, but they're passionate about Christ and they're trying to understand how to get this Christ, uh, get this right. Even though they're sinful, they're pressing on toward that prize that is the gospel. And ultimately, these people 2,000 years ago got it right. God changed them with the gospel. And you're here because they were there. And you have become their legacy. And you are building a legacy now until Christ returns. So we won't be too hard on them. What we will do instead is we'll seek to learn what they learned and to understand better what we tether ourselves to. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul starts here in verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you but bold toward you when I am away, He's quoting an accusation against him, an attack. He's being sarcastic. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. That's a threat. In case you didn't get that, that's a sober warning. Listen, if you want to see boldness, wait till I come to town. And I talk to these people who have accused me of something that really, really lights Paul up. What is it? They've accused him of walking in the flesh. They've accused him of seeing the world through a worldly filter. And he goes on to say they don't even know what that means. Here's what he says. For though we walk in the flesh, that means we live among the world. We live among the Gentiles, the people who don't know Christ. We live and we work and we play with those people and we engage in the world's activities to be salt and light to the world. Even though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. In other words, we battle in the world, but we don't use the weapons of the world's warfare. We don't use dishonesty. We don't use power mongering. We don't use manipulation. We don't depart from the nature and character of Christ in the way that we interact with the world. We destroy arguments 
and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey what? All the rules of being a Christian. All of the ceremonies that we're supposed to participate in. No. The wisdom of the Greeks. No. One word. Christ. He's the gravity. His gospel is the gravity. His gospel is the supernatural laws of the universe to which we tether ourselves on our journey home to the new heavens and the new earth that God is building for all who would trust in Him. He and His likeness and His character and His power are what we tether ourselves to and nothing else. It's the gospel in all its wisdom, all its power, all its vision to which you take every thought captive. I want you to think about obedience to Christ differently than just a moral pursuit. Jesus is this way, it's good for me to be this way. No. I want you to imagine that when you become a Christian, you are made to be in the likeness of Christ. You're made to be transformed until you're just like He is. And so keep taking every thought captive is not just being a good moral person. It's even though you're challenged to think after the world... You take those thoughts captive and you think like Christ. Even if you're challenged to think about work and to use the same practices as the world to be successful. No, 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 no. You take those thoughts captive to the way of Christ, to His honesty, to His integrity. And you run your business to create flourishing in the world, not just to create profit for yourself. When you're tempted to step into relationship and to ex extend your physical relationship beyond the bounds of your commitment to that person, your love for that person. You're willing to take physically without being willing to give spiritually. You say, no, 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 I take that thought captive. And I become like Christ. And I love that person by waiting until I'm willing to love them the way Christ loved me before I take the fruit of that covenant. You draw all those things into captivity in Christ. And that's what it means. It applies to everything. The gospel has something to say about marriage, about the way you raise your kids, about relationships, about politics, about the way you see your opponents and those who disagree with you. The gospel means you should go vote this Tuesday. It means you should educate yourself from top to bottom on all the issues and all the people on that ballot. And you as a Christian should take your civic responsibility to vote and to vote with your gospel lens on. And to vote Christianly and then to not fear. The most important day of this political cycle for the Christian is not Tuesday, November 8th. It is Wednesday, November 9th. It is the day when we understand who our leaders will be and we begin to pray for them faithfully. It is the day when we continue the work that we knew we were supposed to do on November 7th. And we will continue to do that work and if somebody starts telling us we can't, we will still continue to do the work of the gospel. And if something falls apart economically or whatever, we will still continue to do the work of the gospel because that work is eternal and unchangeable and throughout history, it has flourished in times such as these. So we vote this Tuesday and then we pray this Wednesday and we get to work right here in our community. We watch what Jesus does with the power of his gospel. Paul sums it up like this. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And here's the folly, Paul says. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul the Apostle, the, formal, the former Pharisee, religious leader, and in those days, that meant he was highly educated, not only in the Bible, but in everything else. He was also, as a religious leader, a political leader, a social leader. I'm not kidding when I say this. If Paul were alive today, before he was a Christian, he would have been one of the people that CNN or Fox News called to be on their panel and give commentary on the news of the day. That Paul says, I decided to know nothing because I know it's folly. I know of its inability to accomplish the most important things, to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now I want to stop there. Paul continues in that text. He continues to explain and defend he and his ministry partners against these accusations of these false prophets. But you need to know that the case he makes is the case that he, Paul, is weak while Christ is strong and that he has subjected everything that he has to that one mission, to that goal that is home, that is the new heavens and the new earth. And he has tethered himself to the work and power and mission of Christ. And he has given everything to that. That's the defense of his faith that he gives. That he gives. And then he calls out that identity narrative at the very end or in, uh, in verse 12, he says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. They are untethered. You see, if my only identity is me, my only measure is men. What other people think. Let me put it another way with my Martian analogy. If home is me, my gravity, the law of my universe, becomes approval, status, acceptance from others, accumulation of things that give me prosperity and security. And here's the problem. If I'm doing that, and you're doing that, and you're doing that, and you're doing that, and you're doing that, then we're all our own little universes all of our gravitational forces and laws of our universes are in struggle, in strife. That for me describes the condition of our culture today. But when Christ and His gospel are the laws of the universe, and the new heavens and the new earth are home, then we strive together, don't we? By the same laws, the laws of love, the laws of Christ, who though he was one with God, considered equality with God not, some, not something to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and became a servant, even unto death. The one who calls us to, think politics, love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. The one who in the end did that for you, even when you would do him harm. He came to you. He fought through your own sins and insecurities to love you so that you could get home. 
Live for that. It's foolishness to the world. People will think you're crazy. The people who are drifting tethered to themselves. They need you to tether them to Christ.